All right, hey everyone, uh, from afar. We, so Spence, what Spence said, that was, that was really great. Uh, our, our plan is to um, send out more content like that midweek, uh, maybe more than, than once, or I think right now we're thinking once, but maybe even more than that, that's a bit more topical in nature, uh, that addresses what we're all thinking about right now. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's some of our thoughts about this. I mean, things are changing every day, so we don't totally know, but that's our, our plan at this point, uh, but our, our other plan, additional plan, preaching-wise, is to not deviate from our preaching schedule. So uh, we're going to continue today with our series in um, what is the church. So we're going to wrap that up today. It's week six of six, um, and the topic is the bride of Christ. So there's no slides today. There's no um, scripture on screen. So if you want to pull out a Bible or a, a phone app uh, to kind of flip around or whatever uh, as I go through these things, I think Spencer's going to throw up some scripture right on the feed here if that helps you as well, uh, but a little bit different here in terms of the format. Uh, but, but the same plan uh, to wrap up this series and what is the, Christ, uh, what is the church being the bride of Christ today. Uh, hopefully it's been fun for you guys. Uh, we have, I think throughout this sermon, I will just add a few things on like what we've really wanted for us as a church uh, throughout this series. There's been a, a couple of things in particular that we really want to leave you with, even though everything we've been saying, we hope, you know, there's, that, that God's been surprising you in a way. Uh, with some of his graces in the doctrine of the church, but um, there's been a few particular things, too, that we really want to drive home, and I think that fits quite well with uh, this, this topic. So, um, so let's, uh, let's dive right in. Uh, the Bride of Christ today is the focus. Um, we're doing this one last because there is a type of, with this topic, I think, a, and theme, a type of finality and eternality to it more than the others. So uh, the Bible, what I mean by that is the Bible ends with mention of the wife of the lamb. That's one of the last things we read in the whole Bible is this theme or picture of the bride, which is the church, but specifically called the wife of the lamb. So it's an identity that we will have as his people into eternity. Whereas some of the other themes we've been looking at may come to an end, like the army of Christ theme, for example, or the voice of Christ theme, those things in a way might you know, change a bit or wane a bit into eternity. But the body of Christ, the bride of Christ ideas continue on forever. So, so what is the church? The, uh, the answer today is the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. So same format. We're going to look at the what. What do we mean by this? Define some terms and then uh, move into how does this shape our ministry a, a, as a church uh, so some things kind of practically there, especially if you're new to Hiawatha, kind of wondering why we do some things the way we do or um, how doctrine can relate to praxis, Christian, uh, Christian kind of practice in how we, um, how we speak and how we do ministry, how we gather on Sundays and things like that. So we'll talk about that. And then finally, how is the gospel related to this idea? How does the gospel serve as the undercurrent, the death and resurrection of Jesus? How does it serve as the undercurrent? to this doctrine? How do they relate? That's, again, one of our big convictions here is everything truly is about the gospel hermeneutically or interpretationally or biblically, but also in systematics, also in theology, that every doctrine is kind of a branch off of the tree of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we'll, we'll uh, spend most of our time there, actually. Uh, but starting with the what. So what is the bride of Christ? What do we mean by this? Uh, essentially, it's kind of a definition of sorts here, it's the idea that Jesus is the spiritual bridegroom to the church. That since the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve were married in the garden, God had in mind to move all of history to the one moment of when his son Jesus Christ, the second Adam, would come to wed a spiritual bride, the church, 
the second Eve of sorts, to himself, and this is key, through his death and resurrection, by giving his body to her sacrificially. All right, so Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All right, so two things here right off the bat. One, just note this simple, basic, but profound relationship between human marriage and spiritual marriage. Husbands loving wives is like Christ loving the church. All right, so more on that later, but have that in mind as we go throughout this morning. Then note the relationship between love and giving himself up. Love and giving himself up. Christ giving himself up. And and looking out for the church's best interests and purifying her. So Christ loved us, very simply, by dying for us. It was through his death that he purified us. Not his moral teachings, not even his resurrection, interestingly enough, as important as that is, but his death, by his giving away his body, by his giving himself up to be crucified in our place, that's how he became a husband to us. That's how he acted his husband-like character out for us at the highest level. All right, so that's the primary thing theologically going on in Ephesians 5. That's the, that's the main gospel idea. But on a secondary level, Paul is saying to the Ephesian church, to all of us, husbands, take note. Husbands, take note of this. Write this down. Go and so live in this way around your wives and in that way embody the gospel to her and to a world watching. All right, the the second bucket then today, the second thing is, uh, how does this shape our ministry then at Hiawatha? And um, how I ended there with that last section, I want to use that to kind of move into this. I'm going to talk um, on kind of a random level here. There's, There's five things, I think, that Primarily, uh, we would say kind of shape the way we talk or the things we value on the gospel we preach here. And so um, I'll kind of move from physical to spiritual. But um, So how does this idea shape ministry at Hiawatha Church? I'll start in Hebrews 13, 4, where it says to the church, marriage should be honored by all. Hebrews 13, 4 says marriage should be honored by all churches. Marriage should be honored by Christians. And this doesn't mean that we think marriage is better than singleness. It simply means that we believe marriage is sacred. When healthy, marriages show us what the core of the gospel means more than almost anything else under the sun. All right, relatedly, uh, it shapes this doctrine of the bride of Christ, shapes how we'll talk to husbands and how we'll talk to wives. I kind of already did that this morning a little bit. But it'll shape how we do that. It'll shape our premarital counseling. It'll shape counseling, marital counseling as well, how we'll preach sometimes when this topic comes up, and like we are right now. And so we'll address husbands as Christ figures and wives as church figures and encourage the, the drama of the gospel, like what it is to be relationally, to be lived out in the home by exhorting husbands to lay down their lives for their wives to ensure their wives are thriving spiritually, to fight against laziness and the tendency as men that we have to withdraw 
when conflict arises. Um, and so the idea is being a husband is inextricably tied to dying for her. Like, being a husband is inextricably tied to dying for your wife. And that is straight from Ephesians 5. And the reason is because Christ, being a husband, is inextricably tied to dying for the church. And so we'll also encourage wives to, and I didn't read this part of Ephesians 5, but we'll encourage wives to respect their husbands, as it says later in that passage, to celebrate and brag about their husbands, similar to how the church adores Christ. Uh, not to gossip about them or slander them behind their backs, but to celebrate them and to, uh, to respect them and to return love kind of unto them as well in this really uh, amazing relational kind of uh, symbiotic way. All right, the third thing is uh, the doctrine also means that we'll talk about purity and we'll take purity seriously. And so uh, there's two levels that, that this kind of plays out for us. One is more of a narrow, specific level, and one is a, a broader level. So on, on the narrow level, this means that we're going to uphold the Bible's teaching that sex must wait for marriage. It must. Uh, not just because the Bible says that in many and various places, but the, the big reason is marriage is not about us. Marriage is not about us. It's not our story playing out ultimately in like a relationship, a, a dating to engage to married relationship. But marriage is ultimately something God created to tell us something about himself. And so we have to sort of abide by his rules so that our stories can kind of feed into his but also flow out from his as well. So here's what I mean. Like the story of the Bible itself moves from promise, God promising salvation to his people, to a time of waiting, to a time of vow-making, to a time of consummation, so should couples move from a time of proposal or, or promise-making, to a time of engagement, which is like a time of waiting, no matter how short, to a time of vow-making, like at a marriage ceremony, to a time of sexual consummation. Those things are meant to line up in that order. This is why we need to do these things in this order, because, again, our relationships exist to tell his story, not uh, simply ours. So on one level, that's what we mean by purity. Like we, we talk about sexual purity on that level and we talk to like couples and this, this shapes how we do premarital counseling and, and all this stuff. But on a broader level then, and this relates of course, but we'll talk about sin. We'll talk about repentance. We'll talk about living a new life and the power of the Spirit and in the power of Christ's resurrection. We'll call each other to good theology and to live in a way consistent with our new identities, which is washed sinners like a bride wearing white. Uh, even something like church discipline, which I can't really explain this too much this morning for time's sake, it's a larger topic, but for those of you who know what it is, like church discipline uh, is even a way of purifying the church. It's a way of pursuing purity. Like on a, it could be a, it could be a very small kind of private way, or it could be a large sort of public way led by the overseers or pastors of a church, but on either side of it, it's a way that a church purges evil from itself, and in that way uh, becomes more pure. It's a way that the church deals with wolves in sheep's clothing, threats in the church, false teachers or false believers or deceivers of various kinds. Um, to quote partly from 1 Corinthians 5, it's a way that we purge evil uh, from our midst. All right, so it speaks to that as well. 
Uh, fourth, it also means here that, uh, quite simply, we will think very highly of the church. Uh, we will talk of her sacredness. Uh, so again, just going back and not thinking too fastly about it, but just let it marinate a bit in your brain. We are, as Christians, the bride of the Son of God. We are the bride of Christ. That is not a small thing. Isn't it amazing, actually? And that's true for those of you who are Christians, like on an individual basis. Uh, and it's spiritual, obviously. It might be harder as men to think about ourselves that way. And, but it shouldn't be weird if it's metaphorical, because this is what this means. Um, but on an, on an individual basis, this is true. But it, it also means that corporately, or like as a large community, this is true as well, and that other Christians we know in our church, like we look at them and we think that is like, you know, together we are the bride or they are the bride of Christ. And so maybe you can kind of see how this, this might raise the bar a bit in terms of how much we, we should love the church or value her, value gathering with the church, value praying for the church. It, it might shape how we think about the church, how we seek reconciliation with the church, um, and how much we then, it, it sort of disarms us as well. It's, it's like it's harder to think about ourselves as better than other Christians when we see them as the bride of the, of the Lamb, the wife of the Lamb, the bride of, of the Son of God. So, but, but again, but do you see how much this might raise the bar in terms of how, we much val- how much we might value and love the church? Like how much of a package deal uh, the church is with Jesus? Like in other words, you can't, you can't befriend a man and say to him, uh, I want to be your friend, but I hate your wife. Like, you can't say that, right? That's not going to, you can't say that and then expect a relationship with that man to continue. Like, oh, let's go grab a beer, you know? You, you can't do that. Like, someone couldn't say to me, Chris, I, I just think you're amazing, but I hate Aletha. She's the worst person ever. And then, you want to hang out? And I'd say, no, <laughs> we can't. We can't have a relationship. I'm too much like this with my wife. We can't, you can't, we can't be ripped apart. We're one flesh. It's the same with Jesus and the church. You can't have, we can't have Jesus without his people. Uh, They are are too connected, Jesus is with his bride. They're too connected for us to rip them apart uh, like that in our mind or in practice. All right, those are the first two uh, approaches to this topic today. I want to spend the rest of our time with this third angle, which is where is the gospel here? How, How is the gospel of Jesus Christ related to uh, the bride of Christ, this theme of the church being the bride of Christ. All right, three angles to this. Um, the first is to start with our, um, our not-so-flattering origin story. So I'm going to read from Ezekiel 16, 4 to 7, and verse 15. This is God speaking about Israel as his people in the Old Testament, but Israel is a picture of a forerunning type picture of the church. And so it's really our origin story here as well. Ezekiel 16, 4 to 7, and verse 15. All right, so let's read that. God speaking. And as for, for you, for your, your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths, No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by and saw you wallowing in your blood, I I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. 
But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. All right, so, so this is uh, it's a wonderful passage. Uh, it, is, um, it is quite terribly, though, and vividly God's description of our spiritual origins. Left for dead, wallowing in our blood, unable to save ourselves. But then this idea in verse 15 is really helpful. It, it talks about how when, um, when this woman grew up, she trusted in her beauty. She trusted in the fact that she was beautiful. She trusted in her beauty, and that was a problem. It led to, as, as it says here, a type of spiritual prostitution. So this is a very helpful, again, but very damning picture of what sin is. Sin is that. Sin is like loving ourselves too much. Sin is pride. Sin is selfishness. Thinking we can do anything we want. It's being sinfully independent. It's not asking for help. It's trusting in our own good works, in our own spiritual beauty. It is bragging about ourselves. It's comparing ourselves to those we think beneath us. We have trusted in our own righteous beauty. And in that false trust, we have committed the worst of sins. We have sought to replace God with ourselves. And there's so much more to say than that, but isn't that perfectly descriptive of the scourge of humanity today? I mean, I'm speaking like outside of us, but, but then right here as well. Isn't that just wonderfully, terribly, but wonderfully descriptive of the scourge of humanity? This is what the Bible calls spiritual prostitution. We give our love to something else other than our true husband, who is God. We, in that way, commit adultery. We worship ourselves or others. We give our beauty away to sin. But the good news is, so that's, that's kind of back, background, the good news is the story continues, and it even gets more scandalous, but the, the scandal is linked with, with gospel, and so it, it gets better. Hosea 3.1, which is another prophet in the Old Testament, kind of a complementary vision to what's happening in, in Ezekiel 16. It comes a little bit later after Ezekiel. But it says here, Hosea is a prophet, it says that the Lord said to Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord said to Hosea, go again Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. This is the key. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So to see the connection it's making, kind of like Ephesians 5 made with Christ's love for the church, uh, that marriage, physical human marriage, can be a picture of that. He's saying to the prophet here, he actually wanted him to physically go and be faithful to his faithless prostitute wife as a physical picture of how God is faithful to prostitute us. And this is a little murky here in the Old Testament, but it gets much clearer when Jesus comes on the scene. When we keep reading the Bible, and later in the story, Jesus comes on the scene, calls himself a bridegroom, and then marries the adulterous church, cleansing her from sin. This is the gospel. It is, the gospel is not flattering of us. The gospel does not flatter us, but it is deeply loving. It is the, the most loving story we could ever possibly conjure up in our minds, and we never would. It's true. It's, it's the deepest love that's ever existed, 
uh, but it is not flattering of us. Uh, the, the, the problem actually is that we flattered ourselves. The problem is we think we're beautiful. The problem is we trust in our beauty as opposed to trusting in God. So the gospel is, in spite of that sin, that misplaced trust and dependence, Jesus comes to remain faithful to us through his death and resurrection and to wed us to himself. Another angle on this uh, is from Leviticus 21.7. Kind of interesting, a little bit of a hiatus here, but kind of interesting, I want to mention this. Leviticus 21.7, an Old Testament book, uh, says it's part of the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. It says, priests shall not marry a prostitute. So priests shall not marry a prostitute. They shall not do it because they should remain holy to the Lord. This is Leviticus 21.7. But here, in Hosea, later in the story, in Hosea 3.1, like we just read, here it says, marry a prostitute. Go, Hosea, marry someone who is an adulteress. Marry a prostitute. So do you see the tension here? God says to the priest, don't marry a prostitute here. There's, there's theological movement here. There's a change in the story. Things are different as the story progresses. And the idea theologically is the law, which the priests represented, divides and prevents relationships and separates and doesn't allow for sin to be absolved. But Jesus unites and allows for union. Or think of it this way. The law or your works, your and my works, cannot bring you and God together. By its very nature, the law prevents marriages. Leviticus 21.7 is actually a, a law that prevents, in some cases, marriages. So by its very nature, it doesn't allow for a union. But Later in the story, and Hosea is a picture of this, Jesus is the reality of this. Later in the story, in the spirit of Hosea, Jesus comes as a new kind of priest. Unlike the old priest, the Bible says, a different, qualitatively different kind of priest who does away with the law and establishes a new covenant, a new testament, so he can and does make a way for weddings. He can and does make a way for unions. He can and does make a way by doing all of this by shedding his blood, by giving himself away, by producing the bride, in a sense, from his side, like Adam produced Eve from his side. All right, that's the first angle to where is the gospel here. Moving from this, the second angle is purity is given, not earned. Purity is no, for us, is something given to us, not earned. Revelation 19, 7 to 8 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come. And his bride, the church, has made herself ready. Now this is the key. It was granted to her, it was granted to the church to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. All right, so note first in the first verse, or verse 7, it was granted the church. It was given to the church, formerly a prostitute, now a bride, to clothe herself in white. In other words, righteous deeds were given to the church. They did not originate inside us. It was 
allowed that the church would clothe herself. It was caused that they would. And their good works were altogether separate from them until they wrapped themselves up with them. This is, this is um, deep, beautiful, uh, special Christian theology in that it's unique to the faith. Other religions don't, they, 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 by, by their very, you know, by, by their very kind of like basic tenets, they cannot say this. But as Christians, we, we believe we are to be people of the good, and yet none of them come from us at the same time. Isn't this how wedding dresses work anyway? Someone else makes a wedding dress, and then a bride just puts them on. Dresses are altogether separate from brides. And yet, when she puts one on, it's kind of like the dress becomes a part of her as well on her wedding day. Salvation is given, not produced. That's the Salvation is given, and good works are given, not ultimately produced. All right, so what helps us get even clearer is this idea that our garments are not just righteous deeds, they are Christ himself. Uh, Romans 13, 14, this is a really important uh, verse, companion verse to Revelation 19, so if you can flip there quick or just write it down or something, look at this later. Romans 13, 14 says to the church, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves with Jesus. Jesus, put him on. He himself, then, what this is saying is Christ himself is our purity. Christ himself is our white gown. His good works become ours. And so can you start to see how important this bridal imagery becomes? And beyond bridal, marriage imagery, oneness imagery. This is why the Bible says a man and a woman become one flesh when they're married because later Christ will become one spirit with his church, with his, with his wife, uh, spiritually, the church, the bride of Christ. Can you see how important this becomes to not separate the church and Christ really at all? Salvation is so much, in other words, about Jesus that he isn't just the washing water, the forgiving decree, though he is, praise God, but he's also the clothing we wear to cover our shame and cover our nakedness, and the source of our good works. See how all-encompassing his salvation is? How he's not just pointing to a better way to live, but he himself is the solution, the protection, the clothing, the thing we put on, the whiteness about us. He is not a teacher or a taskmaster telling us how to wash our clothes, but he is the clothes. He's more like a husband who becomes one with his wife and who wash, quote, from Ephesians 5, quote, washes her with water uh, than he is a, a taskmaster. And again, the way he does this, through his death. Another way to look at it is, is to say that, I mean, on the one hand, we're saying Christ is the white garment, right? But another way to look at it biblically is to say Christ becomes dirty so we can become white. I'm getting this from Isaiah 52:14, which is a prophecy about Jesus, and it says, his appearance was marred. Christ's appearance was dirty. Christ's appearance was filthy, especially on the cross. Like he, he took on a marring. He took on a non, 
bridal garment type thing about himself. He, he took on our sin. He became marred on the cross so we might become washed. Uh, this is important. That This is the, how the Old Testament predicts the, the whiteness of the church, the, cle- the, the cleanliness or the purity uh, of the church, gown-wise. Like, this is how um, it happens, is by a, a type of marring of Christ on the cross in our place. All right, so the third angle, again, kind of flowing from this one, also in Revelation, is the idea that the story ends with a wedding, not an award ceremony. And by story, I mean the whole Bible. Uh, Revelation 21.9 says, Then came one of the angels, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Uh, one quick thing here about the, this idea of the lamb. Like, have you, have you ever wondered that? Why does it say the lamb here, maybe, and not the lion? Why is it the wife of the lamb? First, lamb just means sacrificial imagery. But he's also called the lion elsewhere in Revelation. And, and I think uh, one of the answers to this is that he will always be known as the lamb. He will always be known as the one who is marred, is pierced, is scarred. For us, he will always be known as the one who is sacrificed for us. And so when it says wife of the lamb, what it's saying is we as the church are wife through sacrifice. We are wife through sacrificial love. And we will always be known as that. The, the, the death of Jesus is not a, a, an unnecessary obstacle between, you know, uh, the, former, the former part of the story and the latter part of the story or something. It is, that, that is the landing point. He will always be the scarred one for us. He will always be known as the lamb who got his bride or claimed or wooed his bride to himself through dying for her. All right, so maybe like, so maybe some of you didn't realize this or it's just been a while and you've forgotten. But this is how the Bible ends. Like, if we're to, like, say, what's the final word, or maybe what's the final vision, what's the final symbol? Um, this isn't literally the last word in 21.9, but it's, like, the last, the last vision we kind of get of the people of God. This is it. We are the wife of the Lamb. It ends, the, the story ends with a wedding. Not judgment, actually, which is hugely reassuring for sinners. It ends with a wedding, not judgment. Yes, judgment will be a part of it. All will be laid bare. Everything will be made known. All will be exposed. But here's the key, and please hear this. Salvation, though, will be based not on what we've done, but on whether or not we've put on the bridal gown. Whether or not we've accepted Christ's vows to us. Whether or not we've become one with him by the Spirit and put on the garment of his grace. Whether or not we've accepted his marred, dirty appearance or active sacrifice on the cross for us so that we might become washed. And so you see that the church then is called a bride because it's true, but also because it's sacramental, meaning it's a physical, daily reminder of grace. 
We are not ultimately called as the church, the pupils of Christ, or the classroom of Christ, but we are called the bride. We are identified by his love for us, more than our love for him. We don't so much follow his way of life as Christians, like if that's, as if that's the bullseye, as much as we believe his whole life and death are wrapped around us like a garment to protect us from sin and death, to cover our shame and nakedness, to protect us from the elements of demonic attack, and so on. And so I'll say this, just to kind of recap a little bit. These are just three encouragements, though. In one sense, to summarize this sermon, but also kind of the whole series. Um, But I guess kind of this sermon. One, we must believe this. Uh, Some of you might not be Christians yet. Some of you are brand new believers. Some of you have been a believer for a while. Wherever you're at, this this is what the Bible's saying, is believe in this. Believe that this imagery is indicative of the truth of the gospel, that it indicates it, that it points to it. We have to believe this, and that other false gospels, you know, that contradict it are, are just that. They're false, and we, you know, part of our journey, and this is why church leadership's important, but also those of you who have been, who know the word and know theology to help us in this, we, we need to know theology well. So believe in this gospel. Let the, I would say, let the gospel cover your shame. And relatedly, going back to Ezekiel 16, forsake your own beauty. and Forsake the trust that you're tempted to put in your good works. Forsake the trust that you're tempted to put in your self. And then in the wake or place of that, um, trust in him. Trust in the garment of his grace trust in him giving himself up for you as the ultimate husband for his wife, the church. That's the first thing, believe. Second, walk in the purity that's given you. So believe that, that it's given you every day that God is actively giving you a garment to put on, that the righteous deeds of the saints are wrapped around you. Not coming from within you, but they're wrapped around, they're objective to you. So know the gospel well part of which is that purity is given, that Christ is one with us. What else can be done? Like, what else do you have to do? If that's true, there's nothing else that has to be done except to continue in belief the rest of your days. Then I would say third and final, remain in community. Um, Even now, though we're scattered, even now, uh, as Christians, relationships define us, right? Our God is a relationship in himself. He's a trinity, The gospel is like a wedding. And the church is a relational community to remind us of this. It's much harder to believe all these things when we're alone. Think about it that way. Much harder to believe this when we are all alone. So believe, walk in the purity that's given you, and remain in community. Because when you're in community, you're more inclined to see God as a relational giver um, more than a um, taskmaster or a teacher with a list of things for you to do today. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for this series. Thank you that um, your word speaks so thoroughly, mystically and beautifully about the church and about your, more than that, your relationship to the church, like what defines us. Uh, God, 
we, we pray for us as we're a church now more scattered than we usually are. Um, help us to look to the church as a sacred bride. Um, Father, help our marriages, God, to, to demonstrate the gospel in all its splendor and beauty. Help our marriages to be purified and to be reconciled where they're not. Um, protect us, God, from outside attack. But, but more than that, uh, help us to be ones who honor marriage, and I think that's a physical thing, but when the Bible says that marriage should be held in honor among all, that's a gospel idea, Father. So help us to honor the marriage of the Lamb with the wife of the Lamb, which is the church, the, the marriage that you have, Christ, with your church. Help us to honor that above all, that you have given yourself for a spiritually adulterous, unfaithful, um, self-focused bride. We, we have gone our own way. We've, we're wallowing in our blood. We've been left for dead. We, we cannot save ourselves. We're infants lying on the ground uh, to borrow from Ezekiel. God, we need you. So save us from our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Make us believers in the gospel more than anything else. Mark us as a church. May people know, whether they agree with us or not, may they say those people at Hiawatha are people that believe that Jesus died on that cross and actually rose again. They actually believe it's all about Christ. They actually believe this stuff. They centralize the cross all the time. Father, um, may your fame, in a sense, in that way, kind of go through us uh, indefinitely into the future through our words and what we say, through our songs and what we sing, and through our deeds as well. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, hey, thanks for joining us. If you were able to, hopefully a lot of you were. We, um, we really do love you guys. We already miss you. We uh, were thinking this morning about how Paul longs for his churches, and I think like, we already feel that, like we miss you, and we long for you. We have affection for you, and we're praying for you. Uh, this is going to be our new norm for a little bit, but we um, know that we really are thinking about you and, and already have like, a deep missing and a longing for you. So reach out to us. We'll try to reach out to you as well. Uh, but stay uh, connected in ways that you can, uh, like Spence talked about, and um, pray for the church. Loneliness and isolation is a tactic of the enemy. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, if you um, remember that. But um, yeah, until then, I think we're going to um, just sign off here. Oh, and then look for more content uh, coming up um, probably this week sometime, uh, like midweek or something like that. We're making it up as we go here, but we'll, we'll figure something out. So, all right. Thanks, guys.